Hello, valued listener. Thank you for tuning in again for Let the Movie Speak. I uh, just wanted to give you a heads up. The audio quality on today's episode is sketchy at times, uh, but thanks for hanging in there, and our guest has some awesome things to say. We hope you enjoy it in spite of that. There's no one now, is there? Why do you ask that question? <laughs> uh, you're a gayman. I'm glad you growed up a gayman. Now I know who you are. The churchyard. The churchyard on the marshes. You're the convict I gave the food to. You acted nobly, my boy. Noble Pip, and I've never forgot it. Greetings, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Let the Movie Speak. My name's Travis. I'm Justin. And we are uh, so gracious and excited to have a special guest with us today. We're so gracious. We're gracious. She's she's lucky We're to just be here. just tooting our own horn, huh? Right <laughs> well, off the she, bat. She's lucky cool. to be here. <laughs> uh, no, we are grateful and gracious and full of grace uh, to be here. Um, it's our, our friend Ellie. How are you doing, Ellie? I'm doing just fine. I am gracious to be here also. <laughs> yeah, we're lucky to have you. That's probably more accurate if we're honest. Yep. Um, and, uh, you're, uh, a good friend and a bit of a bookworm. And I think when, uh, when I asked you to be on this episode, I was like, Hey, do you want to do uh, the podcast? We're doing great expectations. I assumed maybe you, you may have read it because you read like a, 5,000 books a year and you were like that sounds amazing but that's the one Dickens book I haven't read practically right that's right yes I I have read lots of other Dickens and I actually just bought a copy of Great Expectations the other day and it was on my it is actually on my summer reading list which is really funny but no I have not read Great Expectations well now you don't even need to I know because you've seen the movie because the movie just really like scratched that itch for me yeah yeah yeah, I think I think uh, if uh, well, what's your favorite Dickens? That's a good question of what you've read. Um, I think it's A Tale of Two Cities. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I have unintentionally started like really with the longest Dickens and I have unintentionally worked backwards from how long they are. Yeah. So I have in my mind that all Dickens books are like a thousand pages long, but really that's actually not true. Um, Great Expectations is only about 500 pages, which considering Dickens is not all that long. And what I tried to do with the last Dickens I read, which is Bleak House. Mm -hmm. um, so he published it in installments, right? So he, right. he would do like two or three chapters at a time. So I tried to do that as I was reading through it. And so I would read a chunk, like I would read what he would publish. And then I would like be done for the day or a few days or whatever. And then I'd come back and like pick it up again right. in the next installment. And you get those mini arcs that he worked in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it makes Dickens come alive so much more because it feels a lot more like watching a TV show where right. you're kind of, you know, doing it episodically. Um, so yeah, I'm a big Dickens fan. Cool. Yeah. I, um, to foreshadow a little bit of the conversation around uh great expectations there's there's some there i think there might be some value in that approach not maybe not mm -hmm. maybe not all dickens but I, this this was released the same way so before we get into 1946's great expectations we're gonna do what we normally do justin what do we normally do we talk about what the heck we watched this week I, I neglected to mention the prizes. <laughs> yeah, please tell us. What are the prizes? Okay, first prizes. You get to go first. What would you watch this week, brother? I was just about to stick you with first, but that's fine. I'll go first. Uh, I went to the movies. Uh, huzzah. And I saw um, a film um, by a Chinese director who is of note to not just like Chinese audiences, but but the world because he's got a bunch of titles that have broken through to international audiences in some ways that um, Chinese films don't always do. 
Um, but uh, this is a movie called Cliff Walkers, and it is a 30s period piece um, about a group of people who are communist special agents um, who are returning to China and they have a secret mission to uh, infiltrate. And uh, it's very spy-y, thriller-y, you know, um, kind of uh, interwar period. Uh, Interesting, tense stuff. And um, I would say if you like kind of like bloody action thriller and you kind of like wartime stories twists and turns that kind of thing it's it could totally be for you um i will say like the one thing that struck me is uh i think i asked you justin before i went to see it i was i, I don't remember what the other option was it's like hey man i could either see this oh it was scott pilgrim versus the world which is just like in some weird re-release right now um in a bunch of theaters which i haven't seen and i'd like to see and i was like I, I could see that or i could see this what do you think and you were like definitely definitely go see cliff walkers and i was like okay done and this movie you know if you hear like oh well this is a you know period piece thriller about uh you know a, a bunch of people who are trying to infiltrate you know from the <laughs> from the 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 chinese government in to to get spy and find information on the Japanese. Um, I think for people like me who are, you know, mostly just ignorant folk to a lot of that real specific, like geopolitical history, um, and the sort of sentiments that swirl around uh, in different time periods, um, towards different countries, it's just different. You know what I mean? Like the, the types of these movies that I'm used to, um, are like, you know, break out of uh, prisoner of war camp movies where people dig tunnels and drive motorcycles and might be Steve McQueen, you know, and um, uh, this is just a different perspective, uh, but, but, but strikingly similar in form to a lot of those. So if you like those movies and you just want like something different and new and fresh, uh, it's got some really good stuff in it, like great action sequences um, and like specifically one car chase that is memorable and really interesting. Um, so yeah, that was, that was fun. And I'd recommend cliff walkers. If you, if you like that sort of thing, what did, what did you watch this week, Justin? I had the distinct privilege, um, and was gracious to my children and took them to, uh, Raya and the last dragon. Um, normally they're not fed. Um, we sit in a dark room, um, and that's kind of it. But no, on this last uh, Saturday, I took them to see Raya and The Last Dragon. Thank you, Disney, for another movie. That, um, <laughs> all hail children. Disney. Yeah. yeah. Content um, maker of all things. Yes. It it was kind of a bummer, and, and this is why. Uh, because maybe similarly how we're going to um, discuss our uh, movie today, Great Expectations, this movie is... Uh, it has all the the pretenses of being a movie. There is a plot, but it is so freaking perfunctory most of the time, um, where there are interesting elements that are never really developed. A lot of things just seem like, hey, let's get from point A to point B. Um, it's beautifully animated, of course, because it's Disney, um, but it doesn't doesn't save it. It doesn't really make it good. And yeah. so in the end, and and not only this, but more so than most other Disney movies, the plot just makes little sense. Um, so thankfully this movie has dragons, so I guess we can, the children forgive that, right? Because um, I don't know about you, I like dragons. Um, and so here, here's kind of the... And then you said you like dragons. So. Yeah, I, the children, whatever, dude. I'm there for dragons. My kids didn't even want to see that. They're like, Dad, I want to see Cliff Walkers. I was like, you know, hey, get in the car. We're going to go see this movie with dragons. And um, so they did begrudgingly and there were tears but um here's here's the thing this movie the kind of overarching plot of this movie and why why this world uh, or this nation is in a fractured state is because there's some kind of creature that is sort of in the ether and it takes this very amorphous shape kind of like purple smoke uh, and it turns people to stone and according to the dragons that exists because that is what is in people. That is what causes strife. As long as there are people, there will be this potentiality for this amorphous thing to take people over and turn them to stone. That's a really interesting concept, I think, that uh, any other movie could have done something with. It's not really, they're just, that's just kind of the villain in this movie. And that's all. What I've told you is all the explanation you really get about it. 
Anyway, dragons fight on behalf of humanity in this movie. Thank goodness, because I want to see some freaking dragon action. And the, <laughs> the higher they fly, the more my my bottom is glued to the seat, okay? And it's just like, oh, cool. What, what color is that one? Uh, you know, what magic does that dragon have? I want to be writing down their names. It's hard. People are like, sir, turn off your flashlight. But whatever, you know, they're just going to have to deal with it. So here's the thing. The dragons, okay, save humanity by doing this. The last five dragons that exist, they're like, hey, we're all dragon siblings, okay? Um, check it out. We've got different magic. Here's what we're going to do to defeat this amorphous monster thing. We're going to take a little bit of magic from you and a little bit of magic from you. And so they all put their magic together in like a glowing magic ball thing, okay? And they give it to the last dragon, okay? That's the name of the movie. Like movie name. Yeah. And so they sacrifice themselves, and somehow the dragons get turned to stone too. It's not really explained why, because they're not people. But anyway, who am I to judge? All right. So dragons have now all turned to stone. There's one dragon left with magic dragon ball. Not like that dragon ball show. Okay. This is a different <laughs> dragon ball. And they've got their, their dragon ball. No Goku involved. And, and then the magic goes out of it. And right. just destroys all the all the evil creatures. Okay. Yeah. And then there's peace in the valley. Okay. Johnny Cash does his rendition. How it's many all references pretty, are you gonna pull? It's here? all hunky dory. Okay. <laughs> now fast forward. Here's a problem. Um, the monsters are coming back. Why? Because the Dragon Ball got like fractured. Okay. People were fighting over it. That's gonna bring some bad juju, and it does, which drives kind of the whole movie. Anyway, this super long-winded explanation to tell you that at the end, the solution to the problem is to put the pieces back together. Right. And then the magic goes out again. Right. And this time it destroys all the bad stuff, and it brings all the dragons back to life with no explanation. Cool. Whoa. So, I, I don't know. I just, like, my kids had questions. I won't even bother, because I've already taken up way too much time. But, I mean, dragons I are cool. I so. think you should just shift gears. I think you should, yeah. you should read I shift gears. screenplay to us. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's coming. It's coming. How much time do we have? Okay. So, here's the thing. My kids are saying, Dad, what was this? What was that? I, I don't know. You know, it's not the usual, like... Go get me another Coors Light. I, I don't want to talk to you right now. Um, you know, it's like, I really don't know, kids. It didn't make sense. So anyway, Riot and the Last Dragon, let me pass the baton to uh, to Ellie. Ellie, what did you watch this week? Wow. Well, um, I love dragons also. Uh, awesome. This, yeah. Am I um, the only this... one that doesn't love dragons? I love dragons. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Love them. Um, but Welcome besides... back to Dragon Cast, everybody. Hey! Besides dragons, I also really just love crime in general. Um, Good segue. So this week I watched Fear City, New York versus the Mafia, which is a Netflix documentary that came out recently. Um, and Netflix totally gets me when they like, you know, they put a new show up and they give you a little preview when you log on. And it's like, oh, okay, I, I'll just watch that. I, I hate, hate it, that, but also, Ellie. I it hate just, that like, so much. I know. I know, but it totally gets me. So I watched this and I did actually really enjoy it. Three part documentary series on the FBI's takedown of the mafia in New York um, and the five families. And it was really fun because they, they interviewed a, bu a bunch of um, old mafia people. And then they also interviewed a bunch of the cops that were involved in the takedown. And several dragons, I assume. There were also a couple of dragons involved. <laughs> yes! Um, they were undercover. Um, and really essential to uh, the prosecutor's case, for sure. Um, but it was really fun because they... what My favorite guy on the documentary was the guy who had to plant the bugs in the mafia boss's houses. And he literally... like. Literally what they did is they messed with one of their phones so like the phone would stop working and he literally showed up as a phone repairman was like, I got to repair your phone and then just like walked in, put a bug in the phone and then was like, okay, your phone's good. 
And like that's how they bugged the mafia bosses' houses. It was that, amazing. That was actually like, happens in a Pink Panther movie. I have to say that is a literal like that's a plot point from a Pink Panther movie where Peter Sellers shows up in a ridiculous wig and he's like, "Uh, phone right there," you know, <laughs> like that happens. That's where they get the idea, dude. You're right. Pink yeah, Panther. That's so... where the FBI. Yeah, that's where the FBI got the. Idea. Oh, the FBI. Um, I was gonna say Pink Panther is grounded. You're saying they got the idea from Peter Sellers from Pink Panther. Yes, absolutely, of they course. did. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> That's what I watched this week. It was a really good time. Nice. Well, uh, I'll get to that right after I watch apparently every dragon movie ever made because I'm missing something. I got I got a hole in my my repertoire. Obviously, it's not just movies, dude. It's books, pictures, uh, photographs because they're still out there. Okay, we got it. We'll get you up to speed. Okay, it's not really pertinent for this podcast, but we'll, we'll get there. You could have fooled me. Uh, let's get into something that has zero dragons as far as I remember. Uh, 1946's Great Expectations. So in our intro section here, uh, we'll just give some context and put some kind of a backdrop for this film to exist. Uh, obviously, it's 1946. Uh, we are, you know, four episodes in at this point, and we can't really talk about a movie from the 40s without talking about that it's, you know, wartime. Um, so that probably plays into this one uh less uh, aggressively because this is a dickens adaptation other than maybe uh we can get into the idea of you know escapism and and that kind of stuff which we've we've touched on before um but this is you know adapted from his novel um which ellie uh so astutely pointed out um like many of dickens's um works was released serial uh, serialized um, form in serialized form rather so in a periodical um, and then we know it as the bound book you know great expectations this is for reasons uh, the fifth greatest British film of all time according to BFI um, it's the first British film to win an Oscar for cinematography it also won for art direction and it got nominated for a couple other things um, and I, I, I think the backstory to this is kind of interesting, so I'll try to be brief with it. But David Lean, the director, um, the, the reason he ended up making this movie is because he saw a stage version of this story that was adapted by and starring Alec Guinness in the role that he plays in the movie, uh, Herbert Pocket. Um, so he sees this stage adaptation, likes it so much uh, that he ends up, you know, f- uh, founding this project and he... He actually, you know, adapted the movie himself, and it's not really taken from that stage script, but he brought over a lot of the people from it, uh, including Alec Guinness and uh, Martita Hunt as uh, Mrs. Havisham, and uh, this is Alec Guinness's first film role. That's probably of note, Um, and they would go on, uh, uh, Lean and Guinness, uh, to to make six more movies together, so they were kind of a a, a duo. Uh, What about either of you? Do you have any interesting backdrop to make sense of this thing for people well it's interesting that you say that it that the film is not um the final script is not adapted from the stage production um because the film feels a lot like a stage production in the way that the scenes are organized and things like that but maybe i'm getting ahead of myself um i also know that stage productions were a really important part to a lot of folks in the war era um I know that Sartre had a lot of um, inspiration pulled from stage production. I feel like in the war era, going to a stage production was really meaningful. So I think it's really fascinating that he pulled his inspiration from the stage production and then turned that into a film. Yeah. Uh, Justin, what about you? Yeah, uh, good good context and points. I'd just like to point out that, um, you know, it all kind of comes back to the original and most important topic um, and in... Uh, Later years, when Alec Guinness um, played a character we know as Obi-Wan Kenobi in uh, Star Wars uh, A New Hope, as it was called in the old year of 77, um, he is able to scare the sand people away by making the noise of a crate dragon. So, <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was going to go there. I'm so glad you covered that point because it really does bring important context to the conversation. Uh, yeah, um, overall, I think this, <laughs> I hate you so much. This was, um, brought about in, I think perceived as more of a prestige film, right? Like a big studio piece with, um, actors, a lot of them with stage backgrounds, which isn't that uncommon. 
Uh, but that brings a little bit more gravitas. And I think it's supposed to be kind of presented and received as such. And that kind of played into my um, my reception of it. And I, I, I don't know about you guys, but we can we can get into our reception of it in the next section, which is uh, what's it saying? Justin, give us a, if you can, uh, kind of a compacted dragon free uh, plot summary. Oh, dang, dude. <laughs> uh, you know me too well. Okay. Yeah. So here we have the story of Pip. Uh, who lives and grows up with his, you know, older sister and her husband, who's the local blacksmith. Story starts out where he is kind of tiptoeing through a creepy-looking cemetery, and it's foggy and dark and stormy outside, and he's going to go pay his respects to his mom and dad because this is a Dickens story and he's an orphan. And uh, alas, uh, as he's just trying to do his, you know, uh, filial duties uh for his deceased and departed folks uh you know i mean we've all had it happen to us but a convict you know busts onto the scene and says hey dude uh check it out i'm gonna murder you and like there's several instances of him telling him how he's gonna eat his liver or how a young man that's with him that he can't see is gonna eat his liver so he frightens the the poor little pip into uh getting him something to eat and bringing him a file so that he can get out of his chains Anyway, Pip does so. The next day, he, he even brings him a little bit of brandy um, and uh, and doesn't see that guy. Um, well, I guess they do capture him in this in this version shortly thereafter, and he sees him off when he's the, the police or whatever have, have caught him again. So then he doesn't really see that guy for many years later. Um, and at the uh, shortly after that, he is invited to go to a Miss Havisham's house. And Miss Havisham is a very old and eccentric lady who is not related to Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, whom wants Pip to come and play with a similarly aged little girl named Estella who is in her care and custody but who is not her daughter. Anyway, dude, it's a Dickens story so I don't really know how to give a concise uh, plot summary here but I'll, I'll keep going and you just tell me when to tap out and we'll do like a WWF thing, okay? Yeah, just broad um, books. Okay, yeah, broad. So um, Pip uh, is told later uh, when he's 14 or 15 or 20. I don't remember, guys. You know, whatever. If you're still listening to the podcast at this point, you know. He's a man a, now. He's a man. Give yourself a pat yeah. on the back. Yeah. He, uh, he, he turns older, as people do uh, when they don't die. And <laughs> he oh um, All is... the dragons are listening at this point, Justin. <laughs> So here's what happens. He gets older, and uh, he gets some good news. Uh, well, Pip, you know what's going to happen now. You're going to be filthy rich. And um, it's it's not the Beatles that have told him this. No, it's a, it's a lawyer. And uh, so g guess what? He is able to uh, live in London and learn the ways of being a gentleman, which doesn't apparently include much more, at least in this movie, than Alec Guinness telling him things like, um, um, Pip, we don't, um, shove so much food in our cheeks at once, old chap. <laughs> it's, it's rather beastly of you. And that, that's kind of, that's kind of it. I guess he just kind of figured the rest out on his own and bought really expensive clothes and took up fencing. Um, I guess that's what gentlemen do in, in that world. Anyway, uh, getting on with this super duper summary that I'm giving, um, uh, Pip uh, eventually gets an unexpected visitor who's the dude from the cemetery in the beginning. What? But you're saying, what? It's been so long. How would that dude know where to find him? What is going on right now? I'll tell you what's going on, okay? Here's what's going on. That guy whose name is Abel Magwitch. Abel Magwitch was the guy that gave him all the money, okay? <laughs> Abel Magwitch made buku dinero over in Australia. Okay, apparently being a okay. shepherd. It was, it was Argent, Argent, Argentina. It was Argentina? You said they said Wales. New South Wales. Oh, gosh. What else was I watching was that, this week? Was that a, the, was that a test? The Australian mobsters. That's what you were watching. Yeah, yeah that's what I was watching. All okay. right, continue. So wrap it up, South America. Yeah. yeah, hey, you got it, man. Um, I got to be off to do Braveheart next. Yeah. Or no, crap. What's the one with Sean Connery where he's the dragon? Literally called Dragonheart, if I'm not mistaken. Dragonheart. That's right. Oh, man. One of my favorites. 
Okay, so Magwitch is like, hey, young man, check it out. I gave you all that money. Isn't that pretty cool? And Pip is like, what are you doing here? This is not going to be safe for you. I feel like, you know, I got some bad mojo. Muddy Waters does not show up um, at, at this point, not unfortunately. Yet. He, <laughs> not yet, but we're not to the end, okay? Um, so... So he's like, oh my gosh, I feel really bad for Magwitch. Let's get him out of town, and I will go with you, Magwitch. They hatch a plan to get him out in a boat so none of his enemies see him, because Magwitch has got enemies, because he used to do bad stuff with bad people. You know what I mean? So anyway, they try to get him out, and uh, oh man, holy crap, it doesn't work. Because one of his enemies is like there, and is like told the police, and it's like a problem. So guess what happens? As what happens, you know, when police try to get people into custody and there's boats involved, somebody's going in the water, okay? <laughs> it might be because they want to. It might be because they don't want to. It might be because they don't want to go to jail. You just never know. But here's what happens. Magwitch goes in the water, comes out. He gets really sick in the body. All the body parts are not doing well after that. <laughs> and so he goes to the infirmary and... Uh, Around this time, oh my gosh, I think we're coming, the end is in sight here. Around this time, Pip finds out, you know, through other smaller plot points that would take me too long to kind of recap, because this is not a recap, this is just Genesis chapter 5 yeah. through 15. And uh, here, here's what happens now, folks, okay, if you're still listening. If not, just fast forward like two and a half minutes and I'll probably be done. And you can yes. listen to somebody else talk. Okay, so... He finds out, oh my gosh, Estella, Estella, love of my life, that little girl that I've been playing with like forever, she is actually Magwitch's daughter. And he's like, man, this is earth shattering. So he tells Magwitch as he's, as he's dying, I love your daughter, man. It's like, it's going to be okay. It's not okay. Magwitch dies. Okay. So not okay for him. It is okay for Pip. He goes back, uh, finds Estella at Miss Havisham's old house. By the way, she burned up to a crisp. She became a Dorito. And um, <laughs> he finds her at her house by herself. And he's like, what are you doing here? I just came here to like snoop around and like reminisce. And there was like voiceover flashbacks going on in my mind. It was like kind of cool. Now you're here. What's going on? She's like, ah, I'm just going to live here and kind of turn into Miss Havisham Jr. And he's like, uh, no, check this out. And he rips off the curtains, okay? It's dusty, it's gross. I didn't see any dragons, which was a bummer. And <laughs> and light comes in, and then Estella's like, oh, light, okay, you want to, like, be lovers? And they're like, yeah, the end. Okay, and that's your recap. Wow, I'm I'm giving you a round of applause. That was, that was something. Um, Thank you. I don't even, I don't even know if segues are possible. But uh, I will say it's a coming of age story. And I feel like we all just came of another age listening to you <laughs> recap it. Um, um, all that to say, um, I think the tongue in cheek uh, recap has a lot to do with the fact that um, <clears throat> let me just say, like from my experience, um, we Justin, we both just read Tale of Two Cities, just happened to be yes. reading it at the same time. And I think yep. both of our takeaways in the end was like, first half of the book kind of feels like the first half of this movie like it's it's yeah. not bad like there's no bad writing but it is it's like long-winded at times right like it's yeah, a little a little long in the tooth getting from a to b or whatever and then like the last half even the last third of that book especially the ending moments are like amazing like like right. so like the some of the best stuff like storytelling wise that i that i've ever read and watching this movie through hour 1 I'm thinking I've never like checked to see how much of the movie is left more. I don't think than watching this um, because it's just kind of dry. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. kind of dry. And I can, I can imagine, and maybe uh, Ellie, uh, no, you haven't read it yet, but I, I would imagine someone who has read this uh, once or, or twice can, can attest to the fact that it might have that sort of tale of two cities kind of pacing, whether that's a problem or whether you're into that. Um, and I think the, the best way to approach this might be just to break down a couple sequences that are of note that really have, you know, significant events happen and then some themes. Because like regardless of how dry the first half is and how much the second half moves, there's like taking all of it into account. There's a lot of stuff happening thematically by the end, right? Like the story is trying to say quite a bit about a, a few different things. 
Ellie, what um, like overall theme do you think the movie is like pronouncing most uh, articulately? Like what what is the story really trying to say to the viewer? Mm. Well, I will say about the, the pacing, that is pretty typical of I think most of Dickens works is yeah. that the first half or so is doing a ton of exposition that seems kind of all over the place. Right. Like you don't quite know how the pieces all fit together. And then just like in A Tale of Two Cities, everything comes together right at the end. And it's this really amazing, you know, revelation. Yeah. Um, I think I think the movie Great Expectations has obviously that same format, but it it kind of strips all of the good parts and all of the delicious parts out. And you're just left with kind of this bare skeleton where you don't quite know you know what's coming next and like the first the three sections at the beginning where you have the graveyard scene and then going to miss habisham's um is that what it is habisham nailed it oh really great um habisham and then like all of a sudden he gets a fortune you're like how are any of these things related and then and yeah actually same thing it's funny that you you were checking the time because we actually watched it in two sittings. Oh, I did too. I gave up yeah. after hour one for the day yeah. and I had to watch the second hour the next day because I was yes. like, I can do another hour of this, but I, I, I got to wait like one day. Yep. We stopped um, right when he like meets Estella again. It's like, Estella. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Like that on accent. Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, yeah. It wasn't, you know, Tennessee Williams. Stella. Yeah. It wasn't that. <laughs> Um, but it was Estella. So yeah, we did stop it there because we were like, okay, I think we're good for now. And then the second half was a lot more rewarding. Um, as far as themes for the viewer, um, it's really interesting when you, when you talk about adaptations, because you're kind of wondering what, what were they trying to accomplish by adapting yeah. your film? You know, what is it that they, they, they want to say that needs to be said? And this is where I think noting that it was a stage production that inspired him first, I think is important. Because mm -hmm. um, it wasn't that he was just sitting around reading Great Expectations one day and thought, we should turn this into a film. It's that he saw it on stage and thought, this would make a great film. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the themes that is important for the viewer in this Era, I think is the final scene. Can we go to the final scene already? Yeah, we can we... jump around because okay. there's no point in going sequentially. Justin already covered everything. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, is the tearing down of the curtains yeah. in Miss Havisham's room um, and kind of letting in the light and kind of airing things out. Um, it, it's a lot of catharsis there at the end, which is kind of unwarranted in a lot of ways because things haven't, like nothing has been terrible. I mean, I know that um, Mr. What's his name died. Um, Mag Magpie. Magpie. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um. So that was kind of traumatic, but then also kind of not because he thought he was a convict like three weeks before, and then now he's dead. But also he gave him money, so there's just like a lot of emotions going on there, I suppose. Um. But then of course you love Estella, and you don't want Estella to become the second Mrs. Haber. Shaw. Um, <laughs> so tearing down the curtains, I think, and like the running out into the open um, for me was a lot of like casting off um, escapism, like you were talking about a little bit earlier with the war. Uh, like, let's get out of yucky London and let's just be lovers. Um, so that's a theme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The um, so the ending that you just referenced in the movie is is pretty close to the ending in the book that got changed right so there's there's this this whole thing that happened with the book where it came out with one ending which is more ambiguous um i don't know every detail of that and if somebody does please feel free to pounce and and fill in the blanks but generally the 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 gist of it is like you're not sure if they end up together but he does make a stab at it you know at the end but it ends more ambiguously and in the movie and in the revised ending of the book there's no question it's like let's go be lovers like you said um and i think um the, there's a few characters here that we could kind of land on that are worth talking about. But honestly, I don't really think Pip is one of them. I don't know how you guys feel, but like mm -hmm. um, of all the people in the story that move parts around and, and get the plot going in a, in a direction, he, he he's so acted upon and not making a lot of choices for himself. Like, And this is to a degree in this movie, 
um, that, uh, you know, we've said that about other, uh, like characters before Justin, like they just lack agency and therefore like, I don't right. know how to root for them in this case. It's like on steroids, right? Because he like, he's in the graveyard and a guy's like, I'm going to kill you unless you bring me bread and a file, you know, and, and what or you know, vittles or whatever and a file. Um, so he does it because he doesn't want to die. You know, that's not really like decision making. That's like forced his hand, right? He gets a little older. Well, you, this wealthy benefactor wants to finance you becoming a gentleman. Okay, great. I guess I'll go do that for a while. Um, and then, oh, hey, you have this much money, you know, per annum, you know, per year or whatever. Well, now you're going to have this much money per year. Oh, well, your benefactor is, you know, <laughs> it's Magwitch. Surprise, surprise. And, you know, oh, all of this stuff that's happening to him, he's not really making any decisions. You know what I mean? Like as a character. So I don't really know uh, how I'm supposed supposed to be interested in him because he's kind of just like a ball in a, in a pinball machine kind of being bounced around the story. Um, but there are characters that did grab me more. And the one that grabbed me the most is Joe because he is so sympathetic and so like human. And, um, and the first example we get of that is Magwitch gets captured in the first part of the story when Pip is still young and Pip is there with them for a reason. Um, when they're catching these criminals right uh, out on the mud, uh, Magwitch sees him and he doesn't rat the kid out. You know, he doesn't rat the kid out. And then they're taking him away on the boat. And Magwitch makes a point to say, you know, I want you to know uh, that I stole the stuff. You know, I don't want you to place blame on the boy, basically. So they they humanize Magwitch in an interesting way at the beginning. Instead of just making him like, I'm going to take everyone down with me, right? He he really takes that that compassion. Uh, I don't know how you can call it compassion when you threaten someone's, you know, liver being eaten out of them. But f fair enough, you know, he's in a desperate situation. But in that moment, we see Joe show him like, real mercy, right? Like Joe says, uh, you know, I, I would never wish you to starve no matter what you've done. You know what I mean? So immediately I'm drawn to this character because he, he does something that he doesn't really need to do from a narrative perspective. You know, he could have said you dirty villain, why'd you take our stuff be gone with you? And he, he does, he does the opposite. Um, and then later on the moment that I liked with him, um, is a, a specific line of dialogue, <clears throat> which it kind of leads into another theme, which is just, you know, class. Obviously we have like lower class folks and aristocratic folks and this whole idea of being uh, gentlemanly or whatever, like the, the character of Estella is really pushed into this life of like loveless, uh, you know, relationships and, you know, building a network of important people around her, but she just has no, again, really no ability to make her own decisions or no, no, no care to make her own decisions. But when, um, when Joe visits him in London, he comes and he even says, I think it's a good voiceover. Actually, he says like, I would, if I was honest with you, I would, I would rather have not met him because he looks so awkward in his suit and whatever. Joe comes up to his apartment. He says a really quick thing. And then he's like, I, I have to go. And he's like, you're not going to go. Um, you must stay and have, have, have supper or whatever. And he says, I'm in the wrong clothes, Pip. Right. Like there's this I think that's really kind of beautiful, honestly, because um, he looks it and then he just says it to the audience. And you just see like this this man who really does have some real compassion and real pathos or whatever. Um, he recognizes the disparity there. And he's like, I can't I can't coexist with I love you. You know, I, I still have compassion for you and care for you, but I, I can't I can't exist with you anymore. So there's there's class stuff in here that's interesting um, as well. Justin, what, what do you think about uh, Joe? Gargery, played by Bernard Miles. Yeah, I found Joe really uh, captivating in the uh, in the children's version I've read. Yeah, ad nauseum, and uh, and in this too, I think he he is probably the most human. He he's the one person you can really root for. I think who who's given enough, you know, where you you have an option to root for them or not. And like a lot of other characters, I also um, enjoy some of the nuances um with magwitch that that exist uh in this film and in in the source material um just just magwitch's explanation like you know pip asks him pointedly in this film you know why why would you bother um helping me why would you why would you give me all this money you know when all i did was really give you some some food and he said you know i i had a kid once and and i i lost her and um I don't really want to talk about that, but uh, I I kind of thought of you as as my kid when I saw you out there, 
you know, and so and in the, in the fact that that he knows uh, and in his dying uh, breath that his his daughter does live and that she um, and Pip might have a future. I don't know. There's some there's something redemptive about that. I think yeah. um, even if it doesn't redeem Magwitch, you know, I feel like it it, it is communicated that. That in no way exonerates Magwitch, but it does put him at a at a greater sense of peace than I think that character is really ever known. Yeah. So I I, I you know I just it's it's a small thing really, and and if that had taken up more of the movie, it'd probably be a much better movie. Or or if something, even if it's Joe, you know, if we if we exam if this story was told from Joe's perspective, it'd be a lot different, obviously. Right. Um. But it it frankly it, it might be for the better at least on film. Yeah. Um, I think that the uh, the family, the familial themes are the ones that stuck out to me, like almost all the time. Right. Like this, like you can't really get around the fact that this is a story about like lost family members or like you can you can kind of break down every character in this story to like foster parents of some kind and like lost children of some kind and like an adoptive sort of element thrown in there and in all kinds of ways. Right. Like Mrs. Miss Havisham. Uh, she has Estella, who she's taken in. Magwitch, in a way, becomes this father figure to uh, Pip, at least financially. You know, he, he this is how he is trying. You know, like you said, Justin, it's not like like perfectly redemptive, but he is trying to repay some sort of debt of of mercy and compassion in a in sort of a paternal way. And then um, Joe is also a father figure to Pip. Uh, obviously, after uh, Pip's sister. Um, she, she got dead. Um, and, uh, so there's a lot of that going on. I, and, 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 and in the end, the only, <laughs> let's see if we take the original Dickens ending and it's ambiguous as to whether or not Pip and Estella really end up together. The only happy people in it are Joe and his wife, right? Like they're just right. like happy and on the water's edge. And like, we plan to have many happy years together. We plan to have children together. Um, but like my frustration, especially in the first half, but, but really to the end is like, are, are these characters that are are supposed to be the most important? Are they going to take power over their own story? Or are they just going to keep like being acted upon? And one example of that is like, does the debt matter? You know, like there's this whole thing about a certain amount of money a year and he, he racks up all this debt and, and then it's like, why? Like at the end, it's never like he's crushed under the weight of his debt. It's usually he just gets more money, you know? So like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that other than uh, just to sort of build up the specter of who is the benefactor. Um, Ellie, what did you think of like family stuff throughout? What did you, what did you read there? Yeah, I thought the, the relationship between the country and the town yeah. It was really interesting to watch unfold um, because it seems like the town, which is where Pip goes to become who he wants to be, is in fact where um, there isn't much to find. Like he is hollow in the town. He racks up debt, which, by the way, like has no so much is left out of the movie from what I know of the book. And maybe this is in the children's version, Justin. I'm curious to know if it talks about how he like squandered all the money that he was given. Um, really just hinted at in the movie. It's right. like a passing point. Right. But I think that's actually really important for Pip's character development, of which there is none right. in the movie. Um, it's just like, oh, you overspent? Look at all these debts. Well, you had tw- uh, 250 pounds a year. Now you're going to have 500. And it's like, what? Is he being rewarded for going into debt? Like it was, yeah. that was confusing to me. Um, so, you know, he goes to town and, and Joe's uncomfortable in town and he's uncomfortable with Magwitch in town and Estella and him don't get along in town. And then you go back to the country and there, of course, there's still problems in the country, but then Joe and Biddy are in the country. Um, Pip and Estella come together in the country. Um, so there's this this nice division between the two and like what is real um and and what is there to cling on to is it is it in the country or is it in the town mm-hmm. um another important point justin is this in the children's book is that the other convict is in fact the jilted or he was the jilter for <laughs> miss haversham <laughs> every like iteration he... of the name is great to me thanks yeah. um I'm trying really hard. So like that's another broken family connection that I don't think is actually addressed in the movie that I is really important, kind of draws everything. Like that is Estella's 
father is the yeah. other scar the lawyer um, uh, the lawyer unwinds that story for us in this in the movie right he like explains well this is what happened and it's you know so mrs havisham was basically left at the altar for reasons and uh the guy who is after magwitch is that guy and you never get that in the movie right no. like they don't even bother touching on that is that in the children's story Justin? i don't know what they do with the, the yeah so the uh the what, what was the first thing? Not not the second conflict, Ellie, but the um, the first thing that you asked about. Um, oh, the debts, right? Yeah, the debts. Mm -hmm. How, the, yes, that that is articulated uh, much more uh, deeply um, in in the books, and essentially it forces him out of London, um, at least in the children's version, and, and kind of back to the country. Um, whether or not that's in the sourced material, I can't say. Obviously. With the the convict, that that part is not in there at all, and mm -hmm. and frankly, having watched the movie, because they don't do anything with that character, like you know, like Dickens does with the original, mm -hmm. it seems like such a wasted opportunity. Just like he doesn't need to be in there. That first scene loses nothing if he's not in there, and yeah. they just right. catch Magwitch, and nothing is lost if we don't know. They've already told us, hey, Magwitch has enemies. Okay, I don't need to see a face for that. If the right. cops just appear, we'll just assume, oh, I guess some enemies ratted on him, right? Right. So it just seems, yeah, I, I agree that it's it seems very superfluous, um, purposefully superfluous, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, the last thing I'll probably say about relationships is it's, it's interesting to to see the two you're right that there are two happy endings which is joe and biddy and then um pip and estella so joe and biddy are only happy after pip's sister dies right right so you have lost there i don't even know what her name is um do we know uh, what her name is yeah we do uh uh where is it i don't <laughs> well pip's sis um pip's she sis. yeah she dies and then and then he finds love with biddy and then you have so that's like in blacksmith land and then nearby in haversham land you have mrs haversham miss haversham being jilted by her fiance so there's loss there and then you have estella coming along as the second miss haversham and she finds love with pip right so that's a nice little like juxtaposition right there between the two of those couples yeah and i'm sure this is probably done better in in the novel but there's a lot of like bookendy stuff right and they, mm -hmm. they they get some of that some of that like visually um um justin i'll ask you about the the cinematography but i feel like that's the best part of the movie you know and it won an oscar for that but like it's really really well photographed and like there's you know there's silhouette stuff in the beginning that's really good the whole graveyard sequence looks pretty good everything around uh, Miss Havisham's, um, you know, manner or whatever, like it's the only, th it creates perfectly acceptable kind of moody, weird atmosphere for that character to have a backdrop to. And then when you, when you get to the end, you get, um, you know, the same kind of shot of Pip in the doorway of that manor, like as a black silhouette against the dead garden where that clock face is frozen. Mm. Um, so it looks good. I think Justin, what about, what did you think? I mean, it, it, it looks good. Um, there, to me, there's not a lot that's really not that every movie needs to try to be groundbreaking or, you know, reinvent the wheel. Sometimes we just want a well-told story. And I, I think I, I desire more from cinematography because I, I feel like we don't really have that, the former, um, a well-told story. Yeah. So, I, you know, I did enjoy there's one kind of weird sequence where, you know, he's kind of stunned at the yes. revelation. And, okay, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And it's kind of like stars in his eyes and it's from his point of view. Yep. And he stumbles back. And the way it's, it is, it is Lynchian. I have yes. seen that. I've seen yeah. David Lynch use that same shot. Yeah. Um, and, and so I really liked that. Um, he's like, and of course, through the crowd and then he like ends up in bed just sort of in one weird, one weird cut. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I, I enjoyed that. But um, if I can make one more note about the uh, the children's version. Yeah. I think it is interesting that uh, the version that I've been reading to my children is the original ending. Wow. Um, it's nice. just. It's not that like they, they, they see each other, but then they just kind of like walk. There's, there's no resolution. It's not like, and they lived happily ever after, you know, that's n not it at all. They're just kind of broken. And so I think this movie does it, 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 whether or not Dickens wants it to be a critique of this, to me, it does seem like a critique, a serious critique of class because yeah. the people in this movie that are most successful are, and, and happiest 
are are the people in like I mean the middle class doesn't really emerge till later in that century in England, right? But um, you, you do have Joe, uh, Joe is kind of the closest representation we have of a middle class, if we can call it that. Um, history people, please don't attack me yet. Um, Send we'll your get to there when we yeah when we come back to dragons, you can we'll talk about Marco Polo at the end. <laughs> but um, but then you see you know the, everyone that's in the lower class is like. A convict or you know a criminal or or they're just destitute right and so obviously that system doesn't work that enables those or forces those people to have to exist and then you have the you know uh, if not aristocracy then the gentle the gentle tree uh, gentry is is all just so vacant and so uh, consumed by materialism and by their money that they have no heart to to step out and to be you know to lend a hand to any of these people generally speaking i guess you could make the argument that mr yeager's the lawyer does what he can by saving estella um but in in other avenues obviously he doesn't do um anything yeah so i i I think if there's any if there's anything that could be gleaned even even from this movie with regards to that i think dickens is saying possibly the class it doesn't work this is a broken system and um i mean a, a lot of his other works i think dive more more deeply into that ella you could uh pro- i i can't I, I can think of vaguely of two where that is kind of core to the, the plot but i can't uh, recall now what those are called but um i i i appreciate that that i i think that's why estella and pip are kind of vapid because maybe that's what dickens is saying like that's what this lifestyle that that's what this is yeah it doesn't prepare you to be a real person, to have agency, to think of your fellow man. You have to be Joe. You have to actually work for a living, <laughs> and you got to get your hands dirty, and you got to um, actually, you know, be confronted with uncomfortable situations where you have to make sacrifices and, and make hard decisions. That's what makes us human. Having a boatload of money and being able to go out in your private yacht and go fencing every Thursday does not it actually alienates us from from our fellow man so whether or not that's what what he meant that that's that's what i think it might be saying yeah um okay lightning round time before we get to the what's it saying section and and wrap things up i just have a couple things here and if you have a quick comment on them go for it i love the shot of magwitch in the doorway when we find out that magwitch yeah. is a factor mm. so that's good i think did you did you both think it was good <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was no dragon wings, so uh-huh. I was like, "Oh, I know what's coming," and then it did, and I was like, "Man, you don't! Need, I can't read my notes. Too, too graphic for the yeah. air." Yeah. Um, it's but, interesting yeah. to think about the shot of Magwitch compared to the shot of Joe. Yeah. Leaving. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're both silhouette-y, and I, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good. Like you can tell they, they set that shot up for hours, probably, to get all the lighting right and everything, and it's a reveal, so it kind of deserves that that uh you know building up and and whatnot um okay other lightning round items what do you think about estella in the movie just overall in the story ellie she's the worst (laughs) (laughs) moving on no justin what did you think about estella wow uh does it have to be that pithy um (laughs) it's it's yeah, it's. I think it's a disservice. Again, just based on you know uh, reading Rainbow Time with with Daddy Justin, it's you know, um, it, she she's a much more complex and subdued character. She's not just out there like, oh, I have no heart. Ha ha ha! Let me see who I can capture today. You know, uh, n- not that Conan O'Brien plays her, Travis, but that would be better. Um, that would it would be monumentally better. So I don't think it's an acting problem. I think it's a it's a script problem where yeah. she is not. She's not the character. Like, how how could you grow up under Miss Havisham and then be like, okay, time to be a social butterfly? You know, right. it just it, it, two and two make five in this movie. Exactly. I completely agree. I think that the whole the whole switch up from when she's like flirting with the guy who, you know, eventually jilts her, um, saying like, no, I only have eyes for you, Pip. Like that whole scene of the dancing. Um, yeah. For all that to be going on, and then. Just in the next scene, when you see her in, in Mr. Ms. Haversham's house, she's saying, oh, well, he didn't want me because he found out my true parentage. Right. It's like, well, you didn't want him in the first place. So why are you right. now saying suddenly that you want him? Um, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I think they did a complete disservice to her character. I think they made her super one-dimensional and also inconsistent at the same time. 
Um, a remarkable just... feat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, one thing that this movie has that we've seen worse versions of. So we'll give it a little. We'll give it a little uh, extra point here. Is you know, young versions of a character and older versions of a character, right? We have young Pip and young Estella, and we have the adult versions of them. And the analog for this, Justin, is Wuthering Heights, right? We have uh, right. young Catherine and Heathcliff and, and then old Catherine and Heathcliff. And I remember commenting on that movie. was like, everybody's good in this movie except uh, the young people, especially young young Heathcliff, if I'm not mistaken. He was the stinker, yeah. right? Yeah, because his yeah. accent. And it was just weird. And he wasn't very, you know, it's a kid actor, so it's hard to like crap on it too much but it just it stuck out right i think this yeah. movie does it a lot better like the kid mm -hmm. actors are really good um so that's great but also like they physically look like their adult counterparts um so like physically and acting wise good continuity between young and old what did you think justin yeah i i agree i honestly wasn't really sure if um maybe i should have put my glasses on but i didn't know if they were um, whoever played younger Estella was just going to play the adult Estella, too, right. depending on how many years in the future they went. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's all, it's all good. I don't have a, you know, a clap, clap from me. That's what you get, David Lane. <laughs> okay. And uh, last, last lightning round item. And then if you guys have anything else to throw in here, we'll do that. Um, Alec Guinness. Right. Like uh, yes. you, you obviously brought up the the Star Wars connection because that's where I first I think a lot of people probably first saw Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi um, because that was like a big deal and still is a big deal. And um, it's just kind of kind of blah, you know, like I don't think he's bad in this, but it's just a not a lot for the character to do it's, kind of a it's thing. It's like a, a cousin of David Niven in, in yeah. a movie. Yeah, that we've seen in Wuthering Heights, if you will. But yeah. yeah, like he's not he's not bad. He's doing everything he can. But like, what does he get to do? He gets to be in the apartment in, in the flat with Pip and he gets to tell him, yeah, not to shove too much food in his face. The only thing I thought was they're definitely going to use this footage to CGI a young uh, Alec Guinness face on something <sighs> in the future. Yeah. What, what was your what was your take on Alec Guinness here, Ellie? Yeah, it's well. It, it was so funny when we realized it was Alec Guinness. Um, we were like, wait, go back. Yeah. What was that? Hold on. Yeah. Um, because neither of us had ever seen him in a role so young. It was yeah. really fun. Um, Kyle was also commenting that my husband was commenting that um, he he's like, I've never seen Alec Guinness smile in like hardly any roles. So that was kind of fun to see a different side of him. Um, I also feel like they did a disservice to Herbert because that relationship, like the friendship between Pip and Herbert, I feel like should have been so much richer and should have given so much more. And we're talking about all the different relationships in Great Expectations. That one is just kind of like one that's along for the ride and you don't really yeah. get much more out of it. Um, but it was really fun that it was Alec and also fun that it was him that was in the stage production who moved onto the um Yeah, this production. is the screen debut. I mean, so mm -hmm. that that's of note but it's sort of like you know someone popping up in something else and you're like oh look that's that person and right. they're, and they're gone you know yep. uh, that's that's kind of it mm -hmm. all right anything else in, in what's it saying anything we didn't cover justin or ellie not really anything important for me and sadly this is not even about dragons but there is a portion where um he gets uh he being pip gets called back to um mr yeager's uh helper guy i don't remember yeah. that guy's name and his his like dad is in the room or just an old guy, yeah. And he is deaf, and he just, it's a it's a Cohen Brothers moment, really. It's so I weird. mean, it's yeah. it's it's just great because, and that's one scene I think, w which really indicates that the movie overall is kind of lukewarm and kind of dead, unfortunately, because that scene really that's alive, you know, just for the presence of that one character and them actually interacting with him. Yeah, everyone actually has agency in that scene, which is really I, I'm not even trying to make a joke. It's just like they. They choose to interact with this guy, and you know the rules of the game are just nod at him every now and then, and he'll be happy. And it's like, who has not interacted with that person, either in a foreign language or your old uncle? You know, like right. I, I think most people have had a similar kind of experience. So I, I enjoyed Honestly, that for the. That was my favorite scene in the entire movie. <laughs> I yeah. loved it. Yeah. We were yeah. dying. We were laughing so hard. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was. It's. This is a romp, let me tell you folks. If you want a good chuckle, just scroll to minute whatever hour and 40 or whatever, hour and 20, whenever that happens. And 
Yeah. Uh, okay. One last thing. Cause I remembered it. I think that the, from a filmmaking perspective, they really nailed the hanging thing. The moment where mm, he's agreed. in, nice. yeah, he's in the office. He's talking to, uh, he's talking to the lawyer and he looks out and he's sort of talking about consequences and whatever, like some, some meaty stuff or whatever. He looks out and there's people, you know, at a gallows and there's a huge crowd around and, and I, we've seen this done a lot of different ways on film too. I think it's really well done in, in the Coen brothers to bring it back to, to the Coens, their true grit. Um, there's a similar kind of sequence, but he looks out and they're, you know, kind of finishing whatever chit chat happens before you, you know, drop the floor out of pe people's gallows and hang them. And you don't hear anything. You know what I mean? You don't hear like snap crunch, none of that. He looks and then he, he, he's, we see Pip only. And then we, we've seen the crowd and then we hear nothing. And then like applause just erupts. Right. And he has to turn away, turn away and wince in the juxtaposition of the crowd just being elated. Um, while we know something horrific just happened is really, uh, powerful, I think. And, and interesting. Um, I think we hit all, uh, we, we, we tackled all the dragons in this story. And uh, we're going to wrap it up in our section called, Is It Worth Your Time? So we have a patented question here, and I'll start off with our uh, gracious guest, um, a dragon e a expert uh, 2.0. Uh, the, the key questions here are, uh, is it worth your time? And if you would rewatch this, how often would you rewatch this, Ellie? Okay, I'll put both questions together. Well, nope, that's not that's not an option. <laughs> well, sorry, that's I'm what just I'm going to do. Go ahead. Um, I think that this I was trying to figure out like when would be the perfect time to watch this movie, and I think it would be really late at night in October. Because it's like kind of spooky, but also like it's okay if you fall asleep halfway through. So it's like <laughs> one of those movies that you might have like a cup of hot cocoa. It might be Halloween or like close to Halloween. And you just kind of want to put something on in the background. And if you fall asleep, it's not the end of the world. Um, so would I rewatch it? Yes. Late at night in October. That's okay. what I'm going to say. Every October or just like like when you're 40, you might watch it again. Um, um, not not every October, definitely not every October, but I'd say like, you know how every now and then you like kind of pick your head up out of the sand. You're like, oh, I haven't seen that movie in a while. It's like one of those. All right. Perfect. Justin, how about you? Man, well, that was that was great, Ellie. You put me there in the scene. So uh, <laughs> congratulations. I guess we'll read about that in your upcoming novella. Um, you know, so uh, Simple Simon over here thinks that I probably wouldn't watch it very much. Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's not a very good movie, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> it, it is vaguely spooky, but it's very bland. And if you enjoy salt on your meat like I do, and we don't eat dragons. Don't even go there, Travis. Okay? <laughs> Protected class. Okay? Not freaking funny. I'm not buying it. But if you enjoy salt on your food, whether it be meat or vegetables or a starchy carbohydrate, then uh, you will not enjoy this movie. Case closed. Okay, well, um, I, I'll, I'll steer away from, I had some food uh, metaphors planned too, but I'll, I'll table those. Um, and just to say, uh, I generally like Dickens. Um, I, I really, I know it's, it's probably cliche, but like, I love A Christmas Carol. It's just a really good story. And I think there's a reason that it's been adapted more than uh, probably anything ever um, in on stage and in film. And um, I think that the stuff that he, he attempts to say about like class and, and people and coming of age, you know, the coming of age thing is, is pretty common for him um, is usually worth your time. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of the form here. Like it, this kind of big budget studio level kind of prestige picture, uh, top five BFI list, whatever you want to use to kind of hold, hold this thing in high regard. That's, that doesn't do it any, any, any favors and the tonal inconsistencies where it doesn't quite go dark enough when it should, um, make, make the first hour bland, make the second hour feel kind of too compacted with all the themes to digest them properly. Sorry, that's food again. Um, but I, I, I would not rewatch this 
Although I'm not like upset that I watched it once. I didn't feel like it was a total waste of time. So if you're the kind of person who you want to kind of tick the boxes of important films or, you know, kind of big prestige adaptations, it, it could be worth your time. Um, but I, I, I would rewatch this uh, none times from a pacing perspective. If at the hour mark, I, I'm like, oh, Miss Havisham just burned to death and yay, I'm on board. That's probably not a good sign for the, the pacing of your film. Well, we read all of uh, David Lean's two hour great expectations uh, and it was a little hit and miss. Uh, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, your- thanks Ellie. I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yes, I think we'd be happy probably to have you back again in the future. Yeah. Um, Next week, we have The Big Sleep. We have a guest coming back. Who is that guest, Justin? It's Anytime. Buckle up for Bogart and Bacall, everybody. Great alliteration. Uh, We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye. Let the movie speak.